I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I wrote the book out of a state of fear and dread, but I also am a utopian science fiction writer, and I wanted to look at that situation straight in the face and say, catastrophes are coming could we still get to a good result 30 years on anyway even if it's messy even if it looks like a series of defeats what's the best case scenario that i can imagine that i can get my readers to believe in and that's the story of the ministry for the future i'm sarah wilson and this is wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Now, have any of you read The Ministry for the Future, the sci-fi novel set in the climate catastrophe-wrecked future by Kim Stanley Robinson? If not, I'd politely, but with some force, urge you to. Kim Stanley Robertson, just for those of you who, like me, don't know such things, is regarded as the greatest living sci-fi writer best known for his Mars trilogy. Now, I'm not the first to make such a vigorous recommendation for this book. Barack Obama included it on his best books list for 2020, I think it was. And American broadcaster Ezra Klein has declared that every policymaker on the planet should read it. And such has been the influence of this incredible book. Kim is now called on by government officials, including the Pentagon, for advice. And he was the star speaker at COP26 last year in Glasgow. I read the book two years ago without knowing any of this background, but was brought to slackjaw and tears by the way it so brutally lays out a path for humanity that only just averts a biosphere collapse and extinction event. The Ministry for the Future is a UN-esque type structure set up to, well, save the future. And a Christiana Figueres-like character is tasked with running it and essentially solving all the quandaries we ourselves confront when we try to piece apart how the hell we can halt this rolling catastrophe. In this fictional future, the controversial practice of geoengineering, including the spraying of chemicals into the atmosphere to reflect sunlight back into the atmosphere, which I've written about recently on Substack as occurring as a real thing, has brought our future selves time to decarbonize, but not without fallout, like literal fallout of the chemicals as they fall back to earth. Eco-violence is a thing as people react like they're having a war waged against them. Capitalism ruptures, hundreds of millions of people die. And people stop flying planes, although mostly because eco-terrorists now shoot them down from the sky. What I loved about the book 
is that it is in fact utopian in the sense that humanity is eventually saved, just. But it presents the reality of this anti-anti-utopian vision, as Kim calls it, as being messy and ununified, highly compromised, violent, with a lot of collateral damage. I mean, I don't love any of that, but I love that Kim goes there and discusses this as a real thing. In the time it took to get Kim onto my podcast, he had published his 22nd book, this time nonfiction. The High Sierras, a love story. It's a sort of memoir slash ode to hiking and mountains. And especially, of course, the High Sierras in California, which was the last region I hiked before the pandemic hit. So I have a very particular interest in this most recent book too. As Kim writes, mountains have influenced all of his sci-fi books. And in our conversation, we traverse the themes of both books and establish a lot of common ground our lifelong critique of capitalism, and our love of hiking. Oh, and this idea of streamlining, minimising, and getting ever lighter in the way we live. I think you'll enjoy this chat. Kim Stanley Robertson, it's an absolute joy to be speaking to you from the other side of the world. Thanks, Sarah. Good to be with you. Now, look, I'd love to start with something that I find really interesting and somewhat inspiring and terrifying, and it's the fact that you now do your writing outdoors. Why is that, and and what does it look like writing outside? It looks great. I started about 15 or 20 years ago. I had already had a pretty long career at that point. I, I guess I would be in, would have been in my middle 50s, and I was feeling tired of writing, I thought, burnt out. And then I moved outdoors to a cafe table that's in a courtyard that's fenced in by the side of my house. There's a Japanese maple shading it, but it wasn't quite enough shade for the laptop screen, so I slung a tarp from the fences and from tree branches that is is set at a slight angle. I stay out there even if it's raining, uh, which I stubbornly insisted on the first time it rained. But I'm in Northern California. I'm in the back end of a Mediterranean climate. We have short, cool winters and long, hot summers. When it's cool enough, I wear my mountaineering gear, a down jacket, even a down hood, and fingerless gloves, and uh, maybe even a, an electric heating pad for my feet. Sit there and type through the cold. It's quite uh, exhilarating. And it, and I realized that I wasn't sick of writing. I was sick of sitting around indoors all day. I wanted to be outdoors. So at that point, I was outdoors and I have written every single page of every novel I've written since 2006 or so outdoors in all weathers. And for sure, the worst is the heat. You get slow roasted out there in the, our climate. I only know Fahrenheit really, but it goes up over 100 in the summers often very desert-like and then getting worse in that way. So I work in the mornings or I don't work in the summertime and I have a fan. I even got a mister like in a restaurant in the Southwest. And that does indeed cool you down a little, but it's by far the most uncomfortable. But it's a very moderate climate and it's not suffering to be outdoors. It's actually a joy. Little birds are my office mates, so to speak. I, I put out feeders. I watch the birds. I watch the clouds. I watched the Japanese maple go through from its early stage through its um, leaves turning and falling and bare branches and then back again. It's actually been, in some senses, quite bizarre. 15 years of sitting in one chair, seeing one view and watching everything turn around me. The sun to my left 
in the summer it's almost straight overhead in the in the winter it's well down to my left and i put a side tarp down to block the sun coming in and that just rolls on and on and on i might say that it's maybe something in the past tense i don't know that i'll I don't know that I'll be writing as much, but if I do, and if I'm in Davis at home, then I will do it that way. It's been a joy and it's extended my life and uh, my writing life and my probably my real life. And I think it's been good for the books. It makes sense to me for a bunch of reasons. I think that when we have a bit of discomfort and there's been a lot of studies that have shown that we actually concentrate better when there's a bit of discomfort. I think they've done studies on people with slightly having a room that's got a slightly annoying noise. When you actually have to push through something, you can focus better. So I think there's a little bit of science behind it in from that point of view. But also I think having a high ceiling this notion of awe, there's been a lot of studies that have shown that if you have a vast, expansive sort of space above you, you've got a tarp, but I suppose there's this sense that the sky is not far away. It creates an awe feeling, which I would imagine be very conducive to creativity. Yes, and really my tarp is only eight foot by six. And so uh, looking up to my right, I see the sky, the clouds, the Chinese tallowberry trees are open. They frame the view, but it's a lot of sky. So I see the hawks and the larger birds don't come into my courtyard. It's only little ones. And so I see a fair number of birds that will never come into the courtyard, but are up there hovering above. And I would say there's a lot of truth in that when you my writing day is like a little adventure. Like I've stopped in a meadow somewhere. It's It's outdoors. That's crucial. And then wildlife is coming by. That little adventure is the spark of interest that keeps writing a fascinating thing to do. Because really, you're sitting there in front of a laptop. And after a while, the, the tedium of that, if you're an active person, if you're an outdoor person, it's a kind of a strange monastic existence that if you had knew ahead of time what a writer's life would be like in the practical details of day to day, you might not think of it as a very attractive way to live. I can vouch for that, having been a writer now for about, oh gosh, 12, 13 years. And I'm also a mad camper. And I really do get the value of putting work into setting up your environment, which is also conducive and also sort of in congruence with nature. If you're writing about life, you kind of need to be in it. It all makes perfect sense to me. And you've inspired me. I often write outdoors, but not necessarily on the computer. So I might take it to that next level. I want to talk a little bit about Ministry for the Future. In my introduction, say that it had a profound effect on me as it did on a number of commentators and, of course, Barack Obama and many others. And I'm sure I'm not the first to point out this observation, uh, a recent observation. The book begins with what's called a wet bulb heat wave in India in 2025. And for those listening, a wet bulb heat wave is one where it's both super hot but also super humid, which means sweat can't evaporate, so you can't cool yourself down and you basically broil, <laughs> broil in the heat. In your book, this scene, it opens the whole book, and I think 20 million people die, some from trying to cool in a lake, which essentially poaches them to death. It's a devastating way to open a book. But I'm wondering how it was for you to watch early this year, the heat wave in India which actually recorded temperatures higher than what you set up in the book. And then, of course, the heat waves that have been rolling across Europe and the States this summer. What was it like seeing, I suppose, reality repeat the fiction in your books? I mean, it's happened in a number of different ways, but I thought this was particularly telling, especially that direct parallel with what was happening in India. 
Well, it was quite terrifying. I will say this, that was not a hard call on my part. It was really obvious from around 2017 on when I began to read about the uh, wet bulb temperatures and the scientists who had um, put together the medical science with the climatology and said, we can't actually adjust to a a global average three degree rise. So millions will die in that. And the combination of heat and humidity is crucial there. I live in a dry climate, but I know there's lots of humid climates. And one of the hottest heat wet bulb temperatures ever recorded was outside of Chicago. And it's recently been shown that the American Midwest and Southeast are very susceptible to these events. And China is now suffering through an intense heat wave. Uh, as India did back in April. Well, I, by chance, I was in India in April and I had gotten an invitation to attend a conference in the little mountain town that the Dalai Lama lives in. And the Dalai Lama had blessed our eco conference with a Buddhist angle, very uh, moving and stimulating event that I wanted to be at. There I was. Um, and as I left, Dharamsala, it was down to New Delhi in the midst of that heat wave. So I crossed the airport tarmac in a state of apprehension and curiosity. What would it feel like? Well, it was about a wet bulb 31. It was hot, but it was hot like my town Davis. It was a dry heat. And nobody's quite sure if the if the number of deaths from that month in India were properly reported or not. But there's a crucial distinction to be made here. The human body can't handle wet bulb 35 for, you know, five or six or seven hours. Quickly, hyperthermia gets you and you are poached to death, as you said. But the human body can survive a wet bulb 31. And India's used to being extremely hot, Indians. So it wasn't the apocalypse that Internet is so quick to jump. And also these maps in false colors. You look at India and it's a dark, angry red with black center to it. You, you get an impression that is um, uh, artificially created. And it, it does no good to go apocalyptic, then watch it not happen, uh, and then think, oh, there was something wrong there. There wasn't anything wrong there. And thank God we didn't get a wet bulb 35 temperature, because if that happens, and if the power grid goes down, and besides which many Indians don't have access to air conditioning anyway, if we get to a heat index as high as wet bulb 35, it will be a devastating catastrophe. And I am frightened. I wrote the book out of a state of fear and dread. But I also am a utopian science fiction writer, and I wanted to look at that situation straight in the face and say, uh, catastrophes are coming. Could we still get to a good result 30 years on anyway, even if it's messy, even if it looks like a series of defeats? What's the best case scenario that I can imagine that I can get my readers to believe in? And that's the story of the Ministry for the Future. You describe a whole bunch of very complex geoengineering solutions that sound ludicrously sci-fi. And in many cases, I had to sort of go and look them up on Google, like, does this actually exist, you know? And there's a yeah. lot of terms yeah. and science that you refer to. And pretty much every case where I did a Google search, they did exist. For instance, spraying chemicals, I think it's sulfur dioxide into the, into the atmosphere, which then deflects light back into the atmosphere. So therefore reducing heating, that's a real thing that I've written about before, putting brakes on glaciers by pumping out the water that they glide on. There's a bunch of solutions. 
that are wrestled with by this ministry for the future as they try to work out, well, is this going to disrupt things further? Is it worth that cost to ensure that we get a little bit of time? We buy a bit of time in terms of that sort of uh, the CO2 emissions timeframe that we know we all have to work for. Can I ask how many of the solutions that you pose in the book are actually viable and are being developed or already exist? Well, I didn't make anything up. Uh, certainly, I didn't have any original ideas about geoengineering. They're there in the literature. And I regard myself, uh, my own personal habits as a science fiction writer, is as more of a reporter of what's happening now pushed a little bit into a very near future. At least that's one of the main games that I play. So all of those exist and are being discussed. There's also governance issues. How do we decide to do one of these things? They're all generally regarded by the researchers as emergency gestures, that the obvious geoengineering is to decarbonize really fast and to have more justice, more women's rights. These are all climate stabilization methods that are mainstreamed, well-known, need to be enacted as fast as possible. So these so-called geoengineering methodologies, the main one is, of course, uh, bouncing some sunlight back out to space by imitating a volcanic eruption like Pinatubo in 1991. Temperatures drop for a degree or two for about five years after Pinatubo, and it's thought that we could put that much sulfur dioxide or some other kind of maybe less chemically active dust into the atmosphere to make that bounce. But how do we decide? Are there unexpected side effects? Like one being, would the monsoon in South Asia be hampered to the point of not functioning, which would be so dangerous in and of itself? There's also creating algal blooms in the ocean and having that algae die go to the bottom of the ocean that sequesters carbon, coloring the Arctic Ocean orange if it goes liquid rather than icy to keep its albedo up. And as you pointed out, sucking the water out from under the giant glaciers in Antarctica and Greenland, all of these I read about in the literatures and they're in various stages of discussion and also the idea of governing these issues, these methods, that's also being discussed. Can I pull you up on that one or at least um, get your thoughts on that governance piece, which I also see as a bit of a morality discussion that needs to be had? Because, for instance, let's take the sulfur dioxide particles sprayed into the sky. Eventually, that all falls back to Earth. And, of course, there's lots of opportunities to geoengineer such that they land in, what, third world countries? Uh, rather than in wealthy, prosperous nations that get to benefit from this sort of sun-blocking technique. How much do you think the world is actually engaging in these ethical discussions and also looking at sort of long-term tipping point-like domino effect repercussions of fiddling with nature? Because it's, of course, fiddling with nature and the natural balance of things that got us into this trouble in the first place. Do you feel enough has been done to look at the long-term effects of all of this stuff? Yes, I do. It's, it, it's of intense concern. Everybody worries, including the researchers who are working on it, who feel like they're, you know, it's a bad analogy, but it's as if they're inventing something super dangerous like nitroglycerin in order to blow up a, a freight train that is headed for their town. I mean, nobody's happy to be inventing nitroglycerin. And, it's, and so it's under intense discussion. Um, for the specific case of putting, casting dust up into the atmosphere, that will be widely distributed all over the atmosphere, all over the earth, and it will land everywhere. 
Um, this is what happened after Pinatubo uh, went off in the Philippines in 91. That cloud gets spread. Everybody on Earth has red sunsets for a year or two because that's the dust you're seeing from that one volcanic explosion and not the biggest explosion in Earth's history by any means. And it's possible we have the technological ability to imitate that. There were so many things that we're doing where developed countries are hammering developing countries, where rich countries are doing things and poor countries are taking the damage. There are a lot of things like that, but this is not one of them in, in specifically. As to the larger questions, yes, uh, everybody who's working on it would say, first, let's decarbonize faster than we're decarbonizing already. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. This won't let us keep burning fossil fuels. It is an emergency, like break glass in, in case of emergency, a thing that we would do. If people were actively dying by the millions, it might be thought, we better drop the temperatures for a few years if we can and see if that helps and do everything else as well. So it's part of an all-hands-on-deck philosophy and really it's at the emergency end of the all-hands-on-deck strategies. And so I think I think possibly it's best to focus on everything and particularly, uh, well, let me bring up another problem for you that is similarly uh, has to do with governance and is a, a, a super scary thought, more so than geoengineering to my mind. There are countries in this world who depend for their income, 60 to 80% of their income as a country on selling fossil fuels for burning coal, oil, natural gas. This would be countries that are not necessarily Russia with its brutal and stupid assault on Ukraine. It'd be countries like Brazil, Mexico, Venezuela, Nigeria, South Africa, Australia, Canada, the United States. These countries, and some of them, are, and, and the Arab states, are hyper-dependent on income from burning fossil fuels. If they go to the Paris Agreement, which they have, and signed on to the Paris Agreement, which they have, and if we radically cut back on burning fossil fuels, which we must do, those countries are looking down the barrel of financial disaster. They can't pay their police, their teachers, their road builders, their airports, their armies, of course. Nothing gets paid for by these governments that depend for 80% of their income on fossil fuel sales. What are they supposed to do? Well, the world's going to have to bail them out. Now, this is a a gnarly problem, easily as, as dangerous and fraught with moral ambiguities as any kind of geoengineering. It's financial engineering. And we're going to have to say to them, keep your carbon in the ground and we will compensate you for it. You have to promise. You have to give up a little sovereignty. We want to see results. That money we give you needs to be spent on green projects. It's going to be discounted. It's going to be amortized over the next century. But it's a promise we're making, and therefore you got to keep your fossil fuels on the ground. Now, this sounds utopian, hypothetical, and unlikely to succeed, and yet it needs to succeed. And Colombia is a perfect case that we could use as a test. Petro and Marquez got elected there. First time Colombia has ever had a leftist government. Their program was this. Land reform, women's rights, no more burning of fossil fuels. And by the way, we need some help with that last. And so the international community through the Paris Agreement or some other mechanism, are we going to help them or are we going to let them uh, hang out to dry and have a right wing government take over because they're they're losing money by not selling the fossil fuels that we all depend on them not burning?
So there are problems out there much more, I would say, overwhelming, wicked problems than the spectacular, but I would say minor league problem of geoengineering. You don't ignore these economic problems. In fact, Ministry for the Future, I think really the bulk of the the plot line is the development of an economic solution that Mary and her team, well, they eventually realise that all the impasses need to be solved through banks and financial institutions, which is where pretty much anyone in the climate movement gets to when they boil everything down. And they come up with these carbon coins, or I should say you come up with these carbon coins. And I found myself getting super excited about the way the logic of them worked. Would you be able to explain how they work and whether you feel they could feasibly work or if they're already been rolled out somewhere in the world as a, as a possible solution? Again, I'm being a reporter here. These aren't my ideas, but I found them intriguing and, and they filled me with excitement and hope. And I thought, let's tell that story. See what it looks like if you tell the story. The central banks create money from scratch. And so states back money. And the reason we believe in money is because they're backed by the state apparatus. So I'm not talking about private cryptocurrencies here, which have been completely devastated by the the Ponzi scheme that is Bitcoin. So let's take it out of the realm of cryptocurrency. Let's talk about fiat money. After the 2008 world real estate crash crisis, trillions were made up in what is called quantitative easing. Uh, Central banks made up a lot of new money, gave it to the banks, kept liquidity, kept us from going into a depression. Then when the pandemic hit in 2020, same thing. Trillions were brought into being by the central banks and given to businesses to keep them from going out of business. In this case, I mean, in the first case, maybe 10 trillion. In the second case, maybe 20 trillion. So much was created that people don't even know how much it was, really. But my ballpark figures are about right. Well, What they're talking about now is essentially carbon quantitative easing, that the central banks will make up new money that is to be spent first on green projects, decarbonization, clean energy, everything that, and and there's one benchmark measure of it that makes it a carbon coin. You pull a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere, CO2, you get paid one carbon coin, which then is worth more than, and the central banks back it to make this certain, That's worth more than you paid to suck that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Then companies are getting paid, even individuals are getting paid for pulling CO2 down by way of agriculture, uh, kelp beds, uh, mechanical means, reforestation. Everything that's ever been suggested to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere is now getting paid for by fiat money. And it's uh, there will have to be a certification system. It would be a gigantic apparatus for sure. Which is a there would be... link in things at the moment, just with all the carbon capture and storage debates and yes. the fact that it's not globally policed yet. Well, that's right. And that would require here the Paris Agreement and the, even the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. There are international treaty regimes. It could even be the World Trade Organization, for all I care. Anything that runs the global economy, if they are involved with regulatory and and, uh, certification issues, then you can begin to trust it 
And trust is crucial to the whole idea of money. Money doesn't even exist without a high degree of social trust amongst people, which we often overlook, but it's true. And it's one of the reasons that cryptocurrencies are worthless as money, especially Bitcoin. Nobody really trusts it. So uh, what I found out after I wrote Ministry is there is a network for greening the financial system. It's over a hundred of the biggest central banks on earth, including all the ones you'd want to be there, China, EU, uh, United States, but all of the, I mean, over a hundred countries is a lot of them. I'm confident that New Zealand Central Bank is probably on board with this. The Network for Greening the Financial System, you can look it up. They have a website, they have a white paper. They're essentially describing the carbon coin in a, a kind of diffuse, technicalized way. Like they have a nine point white paper. I think uh, a direct carbon coin payment is either the 10th point or else it's a symbol for all of the other nine points. I'm not financially astute enough to be able to make that uh, judgment, but I do know they exist. They're working on it. This is a real thing. Can we pay people for doing the right work rather than for the exploitation and destruction of the biosphere, essentially the wrong work? What makes a profit or what makes a person a living? If we can turn that around by saying governments are going to pay people to do the good work, there is an awful lot of work to be done. So it begins to resemble even a kind of a full employment program. But in any case, it's paying for good work rather than bad work. And it is a real program that's being discussed. I think part of it stems from the fact that in all of my agonizing deliberations backwards and forth and up and down trying to work out how we might be able to shift the system, which is what it all comes down to. I think that, you know, where I arrive at, and I, I suspect you might be quite in a similar position, is that it drills down to the stranglehold that capitalism has on all of us, in particular the neoliberal system. Got us mm -hmm. here into this mess, but it's also impeding the solving of the problem. And I've always kind of had to conclude that there's just simply not enough time to unwind the current system, so we're going to have to work with it. And I get the sense you feel the same way, but I did read that I can't remember where it was now, but that you felt you had to resort to Keynesian capitalism when you were writing Ministry for the Future as a sort of an inspiration or a, or a structural system, which was the pre-neoliberal capitalism, um, yes. because there is such a dearth of alternative theories that you could draw upon. I've got so many questions around that, but I really wanted to ask, why aren't we imagining better economic systems? Like, where is the sci-fi for economics? Well, it's kind of missing in action, and it's been an immensely frustrating to me. Because I am a novelist, an English major, I'd like to invent positive futures, utopian futures. That requires a political economy that is better for people and better for the biosphere than neoliberal capitalism. So, okay, I go reading. Give me some help. It's not very much there. Um, now, I say that because I've been working on this for 30 years. Recently, under the desperate lash of necessity, you're seeing more uh, theoretical investigations on this front, and I've given myself just enough of an education in political uh, economy to comprehend most of it. I would refer you for something that anybody can understand, uh, Donut Economics by Kate Raworth, um, a marvelous book. 
Uh, because it's suggestive of doing what you exactly what you said. You, we're we've got a global system that is so big and so entrenched, and we've got an emergency that is so in our face and timely. We don't have time to invent a, a new world system that is better suited to solving this problem. We have to adapt the system we're in to solving an existential crisis. Fine. Well. Capitalism has had moments of world crisis before, and one of them was the Great Depression, and then World War II. And John Maynard Keynes, the British economist, was always saying, business and government exist in a balance, and government makes the money. Maybe, this is a little bit under dispute now, but in any case, government sets the rules and regulations that run businesses, so they have immense power and are maybe the biggest company. There's many ways to ponder and think about it, but it is not the case, as neoliberal capitalism asserted, that nothing matters but markets, and that markets are great at everything and the best at solving all human problems. That turned out to be dead wrong. It was a theory only, but a lot of people seized it like a religion because they were making a lot of money from it. And there were very little constraints. Taxes on uh, progressive taxation went away, etc. The neoliberal period, 1980 to 2020, has created a new gilded age of inequality and the biosphere is also being destroyed. So one possible thing to do is to go back to Keynes and say, government can take control of an economy when there's emergency, start ordering what gets spent on, uh, stimulate giant projects, and then let the market do secondary stuff. So this is one of the things I've tried for. Yeah, I mean, you actually do bring in a number of degrowth concepts into the book. And it's really funny, um, Kim, I lent the book that I'd um, written up all my notes in uh, to my father, uh, who is halfway through the book and loving it. But I had to get him to do screen grabs of all my sort of notes that I've written <laughs> in the book. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And which which he loved doing because he was like, oh, I went and looked that one up too, because if you find it interesting, I find it interesting. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 2000 watt society. I know that you bring that up in the book and the Gini mm-hmm. yes. coefficient. You talk a lot yes. about wage ratios. You flesh that out a bit. And what I love is you yes. sort of present these ideas and show how it could actually play out in real life. But you also show the moral, structural, political wrestling that we all have to go through to see if, well, could this work? And yeah, the wage ratio piece is classic degrowth and donut economics. This idea that, you know, I think it's, do you work with the one to eight or one to 10 ratio in the book? But perhaps you can just explain why you feel that that's a viable concept that we should be playing around with when we're thinking about solutions. Sure. Well, and it comes out of the co-op movement, uh, but also all justice movements have made the point that we need everybody's work for anybody to become wealthy and that a wage ratio where the 
uh, beginning worker gets one, and then the chief executive officer of the company gets 650, means that some people are making in a single day what it takes other people two years of hard work to make, and that the people who are uh, at the bottom end of this system don't like the system, are cynical, disappointed, in despair, and living immiserated, while other people have way more money than they need. So in my book, I use the example of the U.S. Navy, which is one of the most effective organizations on Earth, and the beginning seaman makes what you would call one, and the uh, top paid admiral in that same organization gets paid eight times that much. So uh, it's easy to calculate one to 10 ratio. And so the co-op movement is often saying that people making most in the system only make 10 times as much as the people making the least. And this is crucial. The people making the least have to have adequacy. So if one is adequacy, then you start doing the math on your fingers and you'll quickly see that 10 adequacies is already ridiculously luxurious. So if you then go to 650 adequacies, you've got an insane system that is also morally sick and, you know, disillusioning for a mass part of the population because it is talking about from the Occupy movement, the 1%, the 99%. There's some truth in that, but it, even if you were to say that the top 10% of the income earners on this planet are making you know, a hundred times more than the bottom 90%, the wealth distribution is simply ridiculous and unsustainable and nobody can be proud of it. And a lot of people will be extremely angry at it and disillusioned. They don't believe in a system like that. Or they ha they live in fantasy worlds where I too will become a millionaire if I just win the lottery, that kind of thinking. Uh, so the wage ratio matters and it is part of cooperatives and it is part of uh uh, social democracy and progressive taxation. Uh, Thomas Piketty, the French economist, he's someone else to point to as being a post a post neoliberal capitalist. Piketty is saying uh, progressive taxation works really well, especially if you uh, tax assets as well as income, especially if you tax corporations as well as individuals. You can create equality. Doesn't happen very often in the history that he studied because. It's amazing how much power wealth accrues and then it, and then it does its best to hold on to what it's got. But in a global biosphere emergency where the planet itself is falling apart under our feet, the chance to reconsider this system is, is shoved in our face. And Sarah, I do want to say that I don't think degrowth is a good name. That the, the people mm, who are adic, well, growth is, um, it has a capitalist definition that is uh, GWP, gr gross world product, gross domestic product. It can be simplified to that, but it's also a human idea. And what if it was growth of goodness, growth of sophistication, growth of... Uh, Moral imperative. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, so to say degrowth is as if you were to say history, go backwards, or people have, have less fun. Um, th these are not the right ways to frame it because a growth in sophistication could make life more fun, but while using less stuff. Even if we talk wage ratios, I think there's so many studies that show that when societies live in a more balanced or at least fair way, they're happier societies. I don't think 
the rich, if they were enforced, you know, if they, if they were told that they could not earn over, you know, 10 times the, the person earning the, the lowest, I think it would actually lead to more happiness. And so, yes, it, yes. It, it's, we need to have these things done for us. And as you say, yes, I can see what you're saying as a growth concept. It's, it's probably worth sticking with the word growth rather than degrowth and, and rephrasing it, reframing it as something that can actually bring us abundance and happiness. Yes. And, and I don't mean to quibble. It, it's, this is a kind of English majors thing. You know, the name is wrong, but, but also you don't want to put people off or put their back up just by the application of one term when you mean a whole suite of actions that actually people would agree with if they understood them fully. I mm-hmm. want to stay in the capitalist realm for a bit. In your latest book, The High Sierra, I loved your reflections, and I think it's you dedicate an entire chapter to hiking gear. Oh, <laughs> um, yes. And I also should say that I also make so many observations about other people when I'm hiking because that's where your head goes, doesn't it? It swims off into all kinds of directions and you create patterns about humanity and you come back with wonderful, well, wonderful content for books for starters. But you are particularly critical of younger hikers who are sucked in by the consumerism of it all. They buy all the gear and it's some how well it depresses you and makes you and to quote you wonder about their critical thinking would you be able to explain what you mean by that and i take it that you're probably referring to a broader phenomenon that goes beyond just puffer jackets and roll mats yeah it's a uh, symptomatic so to speak what i know best is in the united states where there's a a culture of conspicuous consumption and of overconsumption that is a marker of a superiority or wealth or uh, even virtue. It's an American thing that is um, part of our particular national illness, I would say, myself. And what you see on the backpacking trails of the High Sierra is that the young people have been taken in by the advertising industry. They haven't thought it through themselves. They don't have the experience of knowing that weight matters. And so they they go into these big stores and they see uh, stupendously heavy backpacks, sleeping bags, tents, and they think, well, this is a expensive, high-tech, cutting-edge stuff. I'll just buy it all, load it on my back, and off I go. And so the freshman composition classes that I used to teach when I was younger that had to do with teaching critical thinking and then clear expression on the page. Well, that doesn't seem to be happening because they're trusting people who really want to sell more stuff and weight is not the main, the comfort of the consumer afterwards is not the main consideration there. It only takes a little bit of reiteration to figure out, I should go with less. I need hardly anything up there. In fact, the whole game is, can I be comfortable with practically nothing up there? I know enough about New Zealand to know that It might be different there than it is in the high Sierra of California. In the summer and fall in the Sierra, you're not going to get rained on except for the occasional thunderstorm, which indeed you have to be prepped for. But by and large, you're going to be on dry ground. You're going to be in uh, a Mediterranean climate. And even at 12,000 feet, it isn't going to be outrageously cold. So maybe it is a little like New Zealand uh, at the right season, but in any case, I had a friend who was intense on this issue who sewed our gear on his own sewing machine and it took lightness to be the ultimate virtue. And like you don't need 
pockets on your anorak. You don't need zippers on your tent. It went on and on like that. We were early on uptakers. We were the guinea pigs for his experiments in, the in, ultra in lightweight gear. Yeah, we were the ultralighters. And so now when you see someone in a normal heavy backpack walking along, they look like they've got a house on their back. And in some senses, they do. It's been poorly designed. It's been sold to them without them figuring out that they should have been more thoughtful. And now there were many, many counterexamples on the trail because there's a class of people in California who are intent to hike from Mexico to Canada in a single season. That's 2,560 miles, I believe. It's about a marathon every day for four months. And so weight to them becomes crucial. Uh, uh, yeah, I've and, gone on to those online forums, the ultralighter communities, which is, is a very competitive consumer community as well. So yes. people get it wrong in that direction. I, and again, it just speaks to the critical yes. thinking, the lack of it, the suck, the fact that these people get sucked in, I find it very despairing and spend a lot of my livelihood trying to inspire people to put two fingers up to the system and find other ways of doing things that are far more efficient, far more joyful and far more connected. It's a shame, isn't it? Because hiking is a realm where you can escape the consumer cycle. I always say, you know, you want to, you want to save the planet, go hiking because you're away from the billboards and the, all the things that lure you into consuming and you're often out of range. So you can't even get the messages from Facebook and the algorithmic um, messaging. But Mm -hmm. it is a shame, isn't it, when people bring exactly what they're trying to escape into nature. The irony seems to be lost. Well, yes. Uh, Although I want to say something that I know you'll immediately recognize. Uh, Hiking as we do it is not precisely back to nature. It's not a giving up of tools. It's a sophisticated hobby or sport that is high tech. But and that's been true like that ice man that they found in a glacier between Italy and Austria. Uh he's five thousand years old and they, he was frozen, so his entire kit was there to be found in nineteen ninety one. His backpack was incredibly sophisticated. It was a high tech object. So five thousand years ago, and I think that his gear was such that except for his copper axe head, everything that he was using is probably a hundred thousand years old because it's leather and wood. Leather and wood, herbs, he had like forty tattoos. He was intensely, shall I say, modern, but for sure, technological and sophisticated. So it's not back to nature to go backpacking, but you can do it smartly. And maybe that's where it's a great metaphor for life in general. You're not going to renounce and go backwards. It seems unnatural and, and wrong. But you could get more sophisticated and clever. You could do it in a way that's more pleasing to yourself, that exposes you a little bit more to reality, which is to say you're not cocooned in crap because you've stripped down to nothing but what you need. So if it rains, you've got a tarp to put up and and with your walking poles as the tent poles, you jump underneath it, you wait for the storm to be done and and you're not, you aren't comfortable, but you aren't soaking. And it goes on like that up and down the line, a tarp instead of a giant tent, a backpack that's just a bag with two straps, um, a sleeping bag that doesn't have a bottom because you don't need a bottom and, uh, and on and on up and down the line until ultralight becomes a kind of philosophy. It is a philosophy 
to live light and to find joy in the lightness, the level of direct engagement that you can then have access to. And I think that's the point about being in nature. The less accoutrements means that you have more direct access to all the wonderful benefits that nature can bring. And that actually probably brings me to a theme in your book that I really want to pick up on. Psychogeology, it's, from what I understand, it's the way the places we are in shape the ways we think. And I think immediately Mm -hmm. about fractals, and we mentioned awe a little earlier, but fractals, the patterning, the repeated patterning, I think petals of flowers or fern fronds or tidal pools, there's this congruence that goes on in our eyes, which are also fractals. You know, our retinas are made up of fractals. And, you know, I've read the science that shows it creates this beautiful sense of belonging when we have that congruence. There's this recognition. I'm wondering if you can give some examples of psychogeology that work in a similar way to affect the way that we think in positive ways. Yes, I hope so. Uh, But I know exactly what you're talking about here. We evolved to walk. A few million years ago, we were a different creature. And then fire, stone tools, walking every day looking over the next horizon. These are all really deep in the brain. So you do those activities that we evolved to do, and you're happier than if you sit in a chair looking at a screen. Um, because you're doing rather than watching, and that is a fundamental uh, rubric for choosing how to spend your time. Are you doing something or are you watching something being done? And if it's, you know, if the day is, if daylight is shining, you should be doing something, not watching something being done. And you, once you begin to understand that, that we are still primates, social primates, we're still a kind of a, of a, of an ape, a primate that the things that we evolved to do are what please us most. And this is transcultural. So getting out into nature, as Muir said, is like going home. You're going back to the space you evolved in to be best at and to stay safe in, but also to have joy in. So it all comes together. In, and like you say, the fractals of, of small to large, the, the littlest thing that you do and the largest thing that you think are integrated when you're out there. Now, to a certain extent, this is a modern hobby where you are imitating those older activities as a kind of a recreational thing. And then you're going to go back to suburban or urban modern life. That's true. But when you go back, you have a different attitude towards modern suburban and urban life. You do bike to work rather than driving to a gym and and, uh, imitating it and coming home. You have had enough time outdoors to think, I'd rather be doing this than the other things that I do in civilization. I wonder how I could manage to integrate the two and do more. Like my habit of writing outdoors, simple but effective. We we spend more time indoors than we have to. And the more time you spend outdoors, and many outdoor workers understand this perfectly well, and they are amused or or scornful of the indoor people because they know better. They know that a life outdoors is a, a freer and more joyful life. So the the hobby of backpacking, which is really um, as much as I want to claim for it, or maybe it's a sport, maybe it's a philosophical pursuit, uh, it, it mixes genres in a way that's hard to characterize. But whatever it is, 
it's good for your whole life, even if you only do it, well, a month a year. And and you, a University of the Road, eight years of wandering with just a backpack, well, you were more exposed to reality than if you had spent those eight years in one spot indoors. And you know that, and it changed the rest of your life. So no, you don't have to go to that extreme. You don't have to go that far to begin to have your, your views changed by your actual activities. I've got two last questions. I can't let you go, first of all, without asking when you do hike, let's say for, you know, several nights at a time, maybe up to a week, how heavy is your pack? <laughs> sure. Um, although I have to do it in pounds and then you can make the translation. I'll try to do the conversion. Yeah. Um, yeah. For a week long trip, I now began with about 18 pounds. Wow. Okay. So that is, I'm going to have a little guess. I think it's about eight kilos. That's impressive. The second question, it's, a, it's my last question. At Glasgow, you were invited to come and speak at COP26 last year, and you were asked to predict what the world would look like in 2050, which, of course, I think your book um, winds up in about 2053. I guess I'm asking if really ultimately you feel that things several years out from writing Ministry for the Future are more, are more or less optimistic. Well, I wrote it in 2019. And that was a different world. Um, Trump was still president and it looked like he might win again. And the pandemic had not happened. So when I wrote Ministry for the Future, I was in a darker place than I am now. Trump did not win. That was huge. And I think that will sustain. Not that it isn't a spooky situation, but that was huge. Then also the pandemic was a slap in the face to civilization. In ministry, I would say, oh, the 2030s were zombie years because when I wrote in 2019, somehow we had not really taken on the burden of climate change. Uh, but the pandemic was a slap in the face to everybody saying, look, the biosphere can stop your life. It can kill you and it can wreck your life. Your, your civilized life has now changed for everybody. And for a while there, we lived in a changed uh, world and it was global. So now in the year 2022, the 2030s are not going to be zombie years. We, the 2020s are accelerated. We are thrown into an accelerated history where even though time now seems weird, it also, part of that is it's going so fast now, the changes, the opportunities, the lost opportunities. It's a rush and tumble. And no one can say what 2050 will be like because we're creating it from a a truly astonishing breadth of possibilities. 2050 could be a nightmare, a climate catastrophe, a mass extinction event, civilization falling apart everywhere, Ukraine or worse, Somalia, whatnot, a failed state for the whole world. That could be 2050. It's entirely possible. There's not any stability that, that makes that bad future not going to happen. It could happen. On the other hand, we get a grip. We go to the Paris Agreement meeting every year, the COP meetings. Uh, we start dealing with the biosphere problem and with injustice. The new improved technologies are coming along at an amazing clip, like the response to COVID instant, quicker than you could imagine there were vaccines. Many problems that have a scientific solution will be solved. So all we have to do is hold ourselves together socially and psychologically and say, look, it's going to be awkward and messy, but we could get to a good place. And that's still 
uh, physically possible. So the range of possibilities goes from nightmare to a quite uh, hopeful and potential place where after squeaking through these 30 years, we're actually on the, the doorstep of something even better, a, a prosperous, uh, sustainable, long-term human civilization where everybody's taken care of and we've stabilized the population and our relationship to the biosphere. With a spread like that and facing, you know, what could you say about the future except, oh my God, it's frightening, but it's also a situation where we all have to jump in and do the work. I think this is what your book very much, this mystery for the future that is, sets out, is that it is going to be messy. And even when we get to 2050, the race needs to be kept running. It doesn't just stop yeah. with some glorious resolution. The Not deadline will extend and extend. I take from what you're saying, you are more optimistic. But what I would add to that, if anybody's listening and thinking, well, why do you all panic? You know, <laughs> It is the panic that gets us to act. Just like in your book, the opening scene, 20 million humans dying got mm, people mm. to speed up action and to throw everything at it. And as you say, it's messy. It's haphazard. And I think it's going to be like that for a long time. And I've got to say, that's probably my favorite thing about the book is that even the reading of the book is haphazard and messy and layers. And you have a chapter from the perspective of a carbon atom and all of it mm. is layered in there. And I think people would like to think that there's some unified final solution and there's not going to be. But then again, a messy kind of everything in, running the race together solution could also be a lot more fun. Well, it will certainly be exciting. And there will never be a sense of, oh, we've got this uh, mastered, not in our lifetimes. Maybe in the early 22nd century, they could might be able to say, oh my gosh, so many big problems have been solved here. Let's begin to flourish and thrive. And that will be uh, a beautiful moment. But it weirdly depends on us and what we do in the 2020s. And so that's a heavy burden uh, of historical responsibility that no one person can take on to their own head. You get climate dread, you get anxiety, you get depression, you get doomism, people giving up in advance. So what you have to do is think, look, I'm only one eight billionth of this project. If enough of us do the right things, we'll squeak on by even if it is messy, and then go on that basis. Solidarity, I guess, a word out of politics. Solidarity is is important, and to hold on to that even when there's a big press of badness, which there will be. And this is something that I that comes up a lot. I think is an understanding that we're in a destruction phase, which we've had, you know, throughout evolution. Mm -hmm. What comes after that is a rebuilding phase, and then of course we go through a maintenance phase. And the Vedics talked about this five thousand years ago. This is a wisdom that we've always known about. It's what happens in nature. We we hike so that mm -hmm. we see that yes. patterning unfurl, and then we we are able to actually find a little comfort in the wisdom behind that. We're currently in a destruction phase. Let's hope that we turn this round into a rebuilding phase very, very soon. And then, as you say, in 100, 200, 1,000 years, we might be able to go into the cruise maintenance phase. Kim, thank you so much for contributing all your work to this debate. It's um, wonderful and it's always really wonderful to talk to a fellow hiker and uh, lover of mountains. Yeah, yeah. Please go and enjoy your next hike. Yeah, same to you. It's been a pleasure. And um, go Australia. And um, there I've only been Sydney, Melbourne and uh, Hobart and Canberra and a little bit of the coast. It all reminds me 
me of Southern California in a, a way that makes me feel at home when I'm there and people are so friendly. Well, as an um, open invite to come on a hike with me at any point, should you be able to get justify the carbon miles to head this way? Yes. Well, I'll, I'll swim there or row there like a raw savage and then we'll go on from that. What a wonderful human being. It's funny, a good proportion of my guests on this podcast sort of turn out to be 70 plus. I suppose older people have a lot of wisdom and those who've pursued a life of wisdom have been wild livers, potentially live longer, but also work and are active well into their 60s, 70s and 80s. So I'm talking, you know, Julia Cameron, Sister Helen Prejean, AC Grayling. But the other observation I've drawn from these elder voices is that they're incredibly generous with their time. They always say yes to podcast requests and genuinely love sharing their love of living. It almost seems like it's a responsibility to them to kind of share with the rest of us their tricks and secrets for living a good life. Anyway, from this chat, I was inspired by the idea of, first of all, moving my desk outside. It's a bit of a case of do what you need to do but also do the opposite. Do something that charms you when you're feeling flat. Don't settle with the first idea. Don't believe that you don't like writing anymore. Play around with a few things. I also found it interesting that Kim, who scours the world for information and solutions that he can bring into his plot lines, could not find an inspiring economic model that branched away bravely from the horrible limitations of neoliberalism. As Slavoj Žižek once said, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. But I guess when we face the end of the world, we might just have to also imagine the end of capitalism. He refers to donut economics and some other economic models. And to be honest, if this interests you, his book, Ministry for the Future, is probably the best forum for getting an overview of how they could all actually work, including things like wage ratios, the 2000 Watt Society that I mentioned, and the Gini coefficient, as well as, of course, carbon quantitative easing. Sounds all very dry, but he makes it very, very accessible. He also references the network greening financial systems, which I looked up and it's a real and exciting thing. And I've put a link in the show notes as well as to the other books we mentioned in our chat. One other point I just want to make. I love Kim's work because he very much emphasizes the messiness of what's ahead. His book is messy and imperfect. And in no sense does he offer a unifying path or conclusion at the end. You get the sense as a reader that we are, in fact, the ministry for the future, wrangling with the political and economic and scientific ideas, but also the moral implications of it all. I find it a potent reminder, I think, that we don't need to wait out for the grand narrative and instruction set to sort of be presented to us. We just got to get messy and experimental and excited now. I wanted this interview to be a bit of a meandering play with some of these ideas. Let me know your thoughts on it all in the various channels on Substack, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you like. So until next time, keep yourself wild. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.